0: 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10, which you can find on page 966 of the Blue Pew Bible. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in a body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil.
1: I think most people fear judgment. There's something about being evaluated, or being exposed, being found wanting, being found to have done something wrong that, that just feels dreadful to us. I remember not too long ago, I, I got pulled over by a state trooper. I'd bought a used car. And apparently, uh, the window tint that came with the car was was too dark for the, the Commonwealth's liking. <laughs> the officer explained this to me. He was He was nice enough. He said, look, here's your court date. Fix the windows. I'll be in court. When you get there, bring proof that you've solved the problem, and I'll help you with the judge. So I took a, well, first I Googled, how do you get window tint off your windows? (laughs) Then I took a razor blade. I I scraped that window tinting off. I showed up at court on the appointed time. I had a folder with pictures showing that you could now see through my car uh, without any impediment. And so I sat there, of course, for a few hours. uh, And as I watched people come back and forth uh, before the judge, I I was sobered by the reality of judgment. People came forward up to the podium. They spoke into the microphone. They addressed the judge. They were there for matters great and small. Right? There were repeat DUIs. They were fleeing the scene of a, an accident. There were HOV violations and speeding tickets. But as people kept coming forward to the, to the judge and, and addressing him, I was just struck by the weightiness. There's something very grave about people coming forward, explaining their actions, and then waiting for judgment to be passed on them. By the time it was my turn, I was, I was actually beginning to feel pretty nervous, even though I was pretty sure I didn't have anything to worry about. When my name was called, I I started down the the center aisle with my pictures in hand. The judge looked out on his desk, quickly saw what the issue was, and he yelled out to me while I was still about 50 feet away from the the podium. He said, did you fix the windows? (laughs) I hadn't expected it to go like that, but it it was pretty clear he wanted me to answer where I was, so I said yes. He said, show the officer. And there was the state trooper who had pulled me over. He walked up the aisle to me, and I he took my folder, he looked at the pictures, motioned to the judge. The judge said, case dismissed. And I thought, really, is that all? That's it? Like, I don't even get to the podium? You know, that's my day in court? That's my, that's my interaction with the legal system? right?" But despite that, it, I, I was struck. I walked out of that courtroom I was struck by what a serious thing it is to face judgment. Maybe you don't actually need a courtroom to experience that. Maybe we, we actually experience it in the everyday in and outs of our lives right i always i don't know about you i always get a moment of, of sort of nervousness when i go through a tsa sort of scanner right it always feels like when i put my bag in they just they wait for a really long time right and the person's just peering at the at the screen and now i know i didn't put anything in my bag that would get me in trouble but you begin to think like what do they what do they see like what do they know about my bag that i don't know right Maybe it's just the judgment that you experience of of, of an online review of your work. Maybe it's people's response to you or the lack of response on a a dating app. That's kind of a subtle form of passing judgment on who you are. Maybe it's the results of a standardized test, right? The SAT or the CPA exam, the, the bar exam or your medical boards, right? Whatever you might think of yourself as a student or as an accountant or lawyer, as a physician, the test will be the judge. The test will let you know. The test will tell you if you measure up to the standard or not. And there's something about judgment that can, can fill us with, with fear. It can make us apprehensive. And so it may be that as Natalie finished reading our passage for this morning from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, maybe you heard that mention at the end of the passage of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ and you thought, oh boy, this is going to be tough. And if that's the case, I understand. Uh, the, the reality of judgment is sobering. But I think as we look carefully at what Paul's saying here, we're going to see that that's not the primary thing he wants us to take away. Uh, he's not primarily trying to, to frighten us or to, to scare us about the future. And so as we consider what the Lord is saying to us uh, through his word this morning, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, let's look at two things. First, let's look at the hope of eternity. We see that in verses 1 to 8. And then once we've looked at that, let's look at, then at the certainty of judgment. We see that in verses 9 and 10. We're going to spend more time on those first eight verses than we do on the last two. So that second point is going to be relatively shorter. But I think if we, if we try to understand verse 10 about the judgment seat of Christ without doing a really deep dive into what Paul says there in verses 1 to 8, we're going to get his his comments sort of out of balance. Both of those ideas are important for our lives now and in eternity, the hope of eternity and the certainty of judgment. So let's start there in verses 1 to 8 and see the hope of eternity. It's been a few weeks since we've been in 2 Corinthians together. So if you remember where we left off at the end of chapter 4, the apostle is explaining that even though the ministry of the gospel meant incredible suffering for him and for his ministry team, he said that they never lost heart. Instead, he said there at the end of chapter 4 that that all of the pain and all of the trouble that they endured, they considered as light and momentary sufferings, he said, when he compares them to the eternal weight of glory that God was preparing for them. That's 2 Corinthians four seventeen. And then at the very end of that chapter, Paul said that as they did this, as they they considered those those future um, uh, glory that God had for them, he uh, he said they did this, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And friends, that's the idea that the Apostle Paul is going to expound on and expand upon here at the outset of chapter 5. He wants to think together a little more about those seen and unseen realities, those transient and eternal uh, truths. He wants to look at what it means to walk through a world of suffering and difficulty with our eyes set on eternal realities. And Maybe the easiest way to understand these verses is to see that Paul is contrasting two states of existence. And he does this by by using a building metaphor. So you see there in verse 1, he talks about living in a tent as opposed to living in a building. It's clear here he's not talking about how nice your home is or isn't. Instead, he's talking about life here and now compared to the way life will be in eternity after we die, or after the Lord Jesus returns. So if you look at what he says there in verse 1, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So here Paul compares our earthly home, that is to say our, our physical earthly bodies, the flesh and blood that you and I are living in right now, Paul here in verse 1, he compares it to a tent. Remember, Paul is a tent maker by trade. And that was actually an issue with some of the people in Corinth. Uh, Some of his opponents there thought it was embarrassing that Paul insisted on supporting himself by working his trade. So this image perhaps would have been right on the tip of Paul's tongue. Maybe it was even chosen to be a little bit of a, a poke at his opponents in Corinth. But the sense here is that our bodies in this world are like tents. Useful, serving a purpose, but ultimately temporary. Nothing that's going to last forever. Right? When Paul talks about this tent being destroyed there in verse 1, he's talking about what happens to each of us at our death. When we die, the tent that we live in, the body we live in, is destroyed. Paul says even when that happens, we're not left homeless. The destruction of the tent in which we live, the death of our physical body, it isn't ultimately a a final disaster. For Paul also says there in verse 1 that we know that we have a building waiting for us. And look at his description of this building. He says there in verse 1 that it's from God. It's a house, he says, that isn't made with hands. It's not located here on earth, but in the heavens. And it's a building, Paul says, that can't be destroyed. It's an eternal building. So Paul's talking about life after death. He's comparing life in this temporary earthly tent to the life that God is preparing for us with him in his presence. Right, look at the way Paul describes life in this tent, life in this world. This is the life that you and I are experiencing right now. He says there in verse 2 that this life is characterized by groaning. He repeats the phrase there in verse 4. And he adds that we are burdened, right? Verse 2, in this tent we groan. Verse 4, while we're still in the tent, we groan being burdened. And friends, don't we see ourselves? Don't we see our lives? Don't we see our world in that statement? Right? We hear that Paul says that life in this sort of earthly tent is characterized by groaning, by an experience of, of being burdened, right? a, a, a waiting for it to be destroyed. And we know, Paul, we, we live in the same world you do. Right? Think about all of the things that make us groan. If you're a follower of Christ, think of the things that burden you. Right? We groan in response to suffering and sickness whether that's our own personal suffering or, or the suffering that others experience in the, in the family of God. Right? We hear about a, about a sister who, who suffers a terrible injury, and, and even though it didn't happen to you, you groan, you're burdened. You, you hear a, a report, you hear that the, the, the tests came back positive, and you're, you're burdened. We're burdened when we look at the world around us and we look through the eyes of Christ with his compassion and we see earthquakes and, and violence and, and famine and tra- train derailments and, and racial animosity and we, we groan and we, we long for it to be different. We groan in response to persecution, both the kinds that we experience and also the persecution of our brothers and sisters all around the world. We wonder how long is God going to let this keep going We're burdened in this life because our beloved Lord Jesus isn't treasured. He's not honored the way that he should be. As we read in chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so we groan as we live in a world where that's true. We groan in this life when we feel the strength and the pull of temptation and indwelling sin. So Christian, if you feel like you're not living your best life now, the Apostle Paul says, welcome aboard. Right? If you find yourself groaning and burdened, that's not a sign that the, something's gone off plan. The Apostle here tells us that's what life is like in this world, in this tent. And because of that, Paul says we live here and now also with longing. Look there in verses 2 and 3. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Brothers and sisters, we were made for a different way of living. And so we have this desire for better and for more. Right? The groaning of this life produces a longing for that life. A life where all the things that cause us pain and sorrow, all of our limits and weakness, all that's temporary and fragile and fading about this life is going to give way to an utterly new kind of existence. So there in verses 2 to 4, Paul switches up the imagery a little bit. He adds the idea of clothing into the picture. He says, now we groan in this tent, and we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. Right, he's, he's sort of mixing his metaphor here. You don't really put on a building. You, you put on a set of clothes. That's confirmed there in verse 3. Paul talks then about being naked, right? being found without clothes. Right, it might seem a bit strange. What Paul's saying is clear. Uh, unless the Lord Jesus returns first, you are going to die. At that point, the tent of your physical body is destroyed. But Paul says here you're not going to be left naked or homeless You aren't simply dead and gone. You're not a a disembodied spirit for all eternity. But God has a a heavenly dwelling for you to to put on when you die. So we read there in verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Friends, our groaning, our longing in this life comes not from a desire to to cease living, to be unclothed, to to be simply rid of all of this, but Paul says from a desire to be further clothed, to be dressed in a body that isn't subject to this suffering and sadness and sin. In that instance, what is mortal, what is characterized by decay and death, Paul says, is going to be swallowed up by life itself. It might be useful to step back for a second and remind ourselves about what God has said about what happens when we die. We don't need to be exhaustive, but perhaps this gives us context to put Paul's statements into. If someone who is trusted in Jesus dies before the Lord returns from heaven, then that person is immediately ushered into the presence of God. Our bodies, our earthly home, our tent, as Paul calls them here, they go into the ground or into the sea or into the fire or whatever. But we ourselves, our, our soul, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. We see this in Jesus's promise to the thief hanging on the cross next to him, right? That thief expresses trust in Jesus. And in response, the Lord tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. You see that in Luke chapter 23. Verse 42, right? When this believing criminal's body went into the ground, his soul went to be with the Lord in paradise. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation 6, where we see the souls of those who have died for the faith. We see that they are in heaven. They are conscious. They are at rest, and they are waiting for God to bring all things to consummation. In addition, Paul tells the Philippian church that as he contemplated his own death, he was torn between a desire to live and be useful to the Philippians and another desire to be with Jesus. So he writes in Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul understood that to die for him meant being with Christ, but the story doesn't end there, because when Jesus does return, there will be a great resurrection. The world will be made new. And believers will be clothed or, or housed in a glorious body like the body of the risen Lord Jesus himself. Right? That's what Paul told this same church back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I think that explains what Paul means here in our passage. Right? The plan is not for us to be naked or unclothed, right, bodiless for all eternity, but instead, God has a plan for us to be with him after our deaths when our earthly tents are destroyed. Right At that point, we live with him in an eternal world in heaven. And we will eventually be clothed in a resurrection body and live forever with him in a world made new. Right, this is the same promise that we considered last week from the book of Jude. Right, that God is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It seems that Paul assumes that the church at Corinth already knows all of that. But remember the very beginning of our passage there in verse 1. He says, for we know. And then he goes on to describe all of these things that he assumes the church already knows. But we also sense that we don't know this future that God has promised. that, That what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We don't know that in the same way that we know other things. Right, we might know, for example, how tall someone is or the score of a basketball game. Right, we don't know these things in the same way as we know those things. So Paul says there in verse 7, he says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. That is to say, we have a way of walking, of, of making sense of the world that we live in, right? uh, making sense of the world that is to come. Right? And, and that way is not limited to the things that we can see. At The heart of faith is confidence that there are realities that are not available to us through the normal means of apprehension, through things like physical sight and touch and, and experience. Right? Faith trusts that there are things that are true, even though we can't verify them through our senses. So the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. That's not to say that faith is a blind leap or an irrational or baseless hope. Rather, faith lays hold of evidence that we can't see. Faith believes things to be true even though we can't see them with our eyes. That's not to say it's despite a lack of evidence, but, but rather faith takes God's word as evidence. Faith takes God at his word and trusts what he says, even when we can't see it. So the author of Hebrews also wrote, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So this morning, as we hear God's promise through his word that he has prepared a building for us, that we will not remain unclothed and bodiless, but we will receive a glorious resurrection body someday, Right? we may be tempted to think is that, is that really true? I, I can't see that. I've never experienced that before. I don't, I've never met anyone who's lived that out. But brothers and sisters, that's, that's the evidence that we get. We get a promise, a promise from God's word. We don't get a preview video. Right? We don't get a sneak peek of what that life will be like. Right? By sight, All we can know is that people die and go into the ground. We can't know by sight that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he promises eternal life to anyone who will come to him in faith. All we can do is hear God's word, hear his promise, hear his command, and believe him, knowing that he who promised is faithful. So we are called to walk by faith, to walk in light of the truths of our passage, not because we can see that they're obviously true, but because we know that the God who promises them is true. And that's what it means to walk by faith. Now, again, just to be crystal clear, we're not saying that faith is belief without evidence, or that faith is, is belief despite reason or clear thinking. What we are saying is that faith admits another kind of evidence into the courtroom. Right, the testimony of God himself. I think that's what Paul's getting that there in verse 5 when he says that he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Right, the, This very thing that Paul mentions there, he says he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. This very thing is death being swallowed up by life there in verse 4. Right? It's, it's our being brought into eternal resurrection life. And Paul says this is an experience that's been prepared for us by God himself. He is the one who has done it through the death and resurrection of his son. He's the one who stands behind this promise. His word is the evidence that faith tethers itself onto. But even then, God in his kindness doesn't leave it up to us. He doesn't leave it up to, to our ability. God doesn't just say, here's my promise, and I sure hope you can muster up enough faith to to find your way to heaven. Right? No, Paul reminds us there in verse 5 that he he gives us his spirit. God himself takes up residence inside of us. And the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, serves as a guarantee for us that what he has promised will, in fact, happen. The word that Paul uses there in verse 5 that's translated as, as guarantee... Right? God has given us the spirit as a guarantee. It's the same word that Paul used back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You might remember there it was translated as down payment. Paul says that God's given us the spirit as a down payment. Right? The idea here is that the presence of the spirit in our lives is, is aimed at giving us certainty and confidence in the promises of God. Right? A down payment is a sort of initial experience of a transaction that's going to be completed at a later date. Right? If you put a down payment on a house, it's an indication to the seller that you're going to keep your word, right? that you intend to go through with this purchase. Right? We might even call it earnest money right? because it shows that you're in earnest. It shows that you are committed. It's proof that you'll finish what you started. So the gift of the Holy Spirit, to each and every believer is proof that God will bring to pass what he's promised, that he will finish this transaction that he's begun. Right, just think about the, the Spirit's ministry in your life if you're a follower of Christ. Right, the Spirit's ministry of adoption, bringing us into God's family, teaching us to delight in what delights him, convincing us that the Father loves us as his children. Or the Spirit's ministry of sanctification in us, as he empowers us to put away sin and to bear the fruits of godliness. Or the Spirit's ministry of comfort, reminding us that, that we are cleansed and forgiven despite all our sin. Or the Spirit's ministry of, of teaching and engendering faith as he brings God's word to us and helps us to understand and believe it. Right? All of that is an experience of salvation that we have here and now, while we live in this tent, while we groan and are burdened. And friends, it's just a portion. It's a down payment. It's a fraction. It's just a taste of what it's going to be like to experience the whole thing. Right? It's the part that God has given us now to convince us that he will, in fact, do the whole thing one day. He will bring us into a world free from sin and sorrow and suffering. He will clothe us with a body that is imperishable, that's never burdened, never groaning. No wonder Paul says what he says there at the end of our passage. There in verse 6, he introduces the concept. He says, "He says to be at home here in this life and in this body is to be away from the Lord. He says, we know that at the end of verse 6, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's our experience of living in this body, in this life. We, we experience distance from the presence of God. And so he says there in verse 8 what I think is obvious. At the end of the, the verse he says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right? If you've ever gone to vacation in a, you know, in a nice place, you've at some point probably thought, I'd rather live here, right? I'd rather live here than where I live, right? And Paul says, look, I'd rather live there than here. Like, while, while, I'm, while I'm here, while I'm in this body, I live in Sterling Park, right? But, but I could one day be with the Lord. He said, I'd, I'd rather be with the Lord. Now, make no mistake. He's not saying that this life has no pleasure or, or that if you experience any joy here and now, you're doing something wrong. But what he is saying is that even the best joys that this life has to offer, at its very best, this life can only ever be a tiny derivative splinter of all the joy, all of the pleasure that that God has for us when we are in His presence. Right? Compared to the house that God has prepared, life in this tent is is groaning and a burden. But before we move on, just notice the impact that Paul says this reality has on his life see this this knowledge that that God has prepared something better for us it's not just a bit of information for you to understand and then affirm and then file away no if you truly see what Paul's telling us if you have the eyes of faith it will change everything about how you live now here in this tent in this earthly home Paul tells us twice about the impact that this hope of eternity has on his daily life. He says there in verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And then again in verse 8, he says, Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Right, this longing that we have for this promise to come to fulfillment... This hope that we have of, of, of this life of groaning, one day giving way to the glories of being at home with the Lord, Paul says that hope gives us courage. Remember, that's, that's what Paul's unpacking here in the bigger context of his letter. Why it is, as he says in chapter 4, verse 16, he doesn't lose heart despite all the suffering despite the decay of his physical body, despite the persecution and opposition, Paul says we don't lose heart. And Here Paul explains why. We have courage because we understand what God has prepared for us because we walk by faith, not by sight. We see that reality as clearly as we see our troubles here and now. And so brothers and sisters, can we allow this truth to have this same effect on us. Think about the things that threaten to undo your courage. As you think about life now, perhaps as you look to the future, right, maybe you're hounded by constant financial pressures. Maybe you're overwhelmed by suffering. Maybe suffering that's been inflicted uh, on you by people that you love or by people that were supposed to love you. Maybe the reality of your body breaking down, right? The, the balance in your life tilting, it seems, irreversibly towards pain, right? The idea that your mind might fail you. Perhaps those things make you feel like you're ready to give up, like you're losing heart, like you're descending into fear. Well, back in chapter 4, remember, Paul told us he experienced all those things as well. Here he's telling us why it is he's able to keep going, why he doesn't descend into fear and hopelessness, right? Sandwiched right there between we are of of good courage in verse 6 and we are of good courage in verse 8 is the reminder in verse 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Brothers and sisters, that's how we keep going. That's how we keep serving the Lord. That's how we keep loving our brothers and sisters and enduring groaning and burden in this life without giving up, without giving in. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you clearer vision, to give you faith vision, so that your hope and your excitement and your joy at the prospect of being with the Lord eclipses the troubles of life in this tent. When they do you will be of good courage. And that brings us then to the second point for this morning, and that is the certainty of judgment. As I mentioned, this is where we'll conclude. Look at what Paul says there in verses 9 to 10 as he he wraps up this passage. He says, So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see there in verse 9, Paul is going to tell us about things that are true, whether we are at home or away, right? Whether we're home with the Lord or we are away from him living in this earth. And if you look there in verse 10, you see that, that Paul begins there with the word for. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Right, that four tells us that, that Paul's going to tell us about a reason, right? A reason for what he says in verse 9, right? That the judgment of Jesus is the reason that verse 9 is true. And what he says here in verse 10 takes some unpacking. I think we can maybe make some clear statements to understand what Paul says, and then we can move on to Paul's application in, in verse 9. So let me, let me just point out four things that I think are, are obvious from what Paul says here in verse 10. And maybe these obvious statements will just sort of give us some solid ground to move forward on. First, judgment happens after we die, assuming that we die before Jesus returns. This is clear from the the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. We read there, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I think it's clearly implied by Paul's words here. Remember in this passage, he's been dealing with what happens after we depart this tent, after we leave this earthly body. Right? He's, he's talking about that future state when we're clothed with our permanent home. So before we enter into eternal life in a resurrected and glorious body in a world made new, right? after death and before the resurrection, we must face judgment. Right? There's no way around it. Paul says we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that's the first thing. Judgment happens after death. Second, we will all face judgment. Again, there's no exceptions. Paul says we must all. It must happen and it must be all of us. Now Paul's writing this letter to Christians. And I think that his main point here is to sharpen the thinking and the living of people who are already followers of Christ. This, this warning doesn't just apply to the, the sort of super serious, to the, to the, the ministry people, to pastors and, and missionaries. Right? This is something that should be of interest to all of us, young or old, mature or immature. Right? Paul says we all must face the judgment seat of Christ. Third obvious statement, Christ is our judge. Right? Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Right, the, the judgment seat in ancient times was simply the place where a judge would sit to, to pass his verdict. In other places, like Roman, Romans 14, Paul talks about the judgment seat of God, meaning God the Father. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5 that the Father had given him authority to judge. The judgment of the Father and the Son is the same judgment. Jesus is the one before whom we will stand. And then fourth... When we appear before Jesus as our judge, we will be evaluated based on what we've done in this life, how we have lived, how we have conducted ourselves in this time of groaning and burden. This wasn't Paul's idea. He got this from Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 16, we read that Jesus said, speaking of himself, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels. In the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. At the very end of the Bible, in the very last chapter, Revelation 22:12, 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. All right, in both cases, repayment is on the basis of what he has done. This isn't the first time Paul's spoken about this idea, even to the Corinthians. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote this. He says, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul's point here in verse 10 is clear. After we die, before we enter into our enjoyment of a world made new, we will face judgment. We will face evaluation by Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus will pass judgment on the ways we've lived our lives. And he will reward us for the things that we've done in the body, in this tent, whether good or evil. Now, it's important to hold this truth in tension with other truths that we see in the Bible. So if you are in Christ, there's no amount of sin that you can commit that will result in your judgment on that last day, uh, meaning that you miss out on eternal life. Right, the judgment that you face, that Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment for Christians does not decide whether you are ushered into eternal wrath or eternal joy. Right, and That's because if you are in Christ, Jesus bore your sin and guilt for you. Jesus took the wrath that you deserve. According to Romans 5.9, we are justified, made right before our judge by his blood. And he says there in Romans 5.9, and we are saved from the wrath of God that we deserve. So it is true that we will face judgment, but it's also true that, as Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, the, the fires of judgment will not consume you because he took the, the condemnation that you deserve. Spiritually speaking, you, you are clothed in fireproof garments. Right? You are clothed in the asbestos of Jesus' righteousness. And so that fire will never hurt you. But it is still true that God graciously plans to reward and to honor us based on how we've served him in our lives here and now. Right? All who are in Christ will experience different rewards and even different losses based on the good and evil that we've done. Now, there's a mystery here. We don't know what it's like to experience loss sinlessly. We don't know what it's like to to experience a lack of reward without being consumed by by envy. But that's clearly what's going to happen in the eternal state. We will receive different rewards. We will experience different losses, even as we live in a world of, of unspeakable eternal joy. That's the truth that Paul is communicating here in verse 10 of our passage. We will all face the judgment, the evaluation of Jesus for the things that we've done in this life. And as I said at the very outset of our time this morning, that's the kind of thing that makes us anxious and nervous. Who enjoys the idea of being exposed and evaluated? But as I also said, I don't think that that's primarily what Paul intends and what he aims at here. Instead, I think he actually means it to be encouraging, maybe even exciting. Life in this tent is difficult and painful, characterized by groaning and burden. But Paul's reminding us it is also an opportunity. God has delivered us from condemnation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And he has graciously planned to shower us with rewards for the good that we've done in this life. And here's the thing. Don't think that God only rewards extravagant acts of service and obedience. Don't think that that on that day God's going to look and be like, look, you 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 never went to a foreign country. You never risked your life to, to spread the gospel. There's there's nothing here for you. I've got I've got nothing nice to say. No, listen to the kinds of things that God, in his word, promises. So by faith, you can tether onto these promises as true. Listen to the kinds of things that God says he's going to reward you for. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you. You ever been reviled? When they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they... Pro- persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 6, verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. A couple of verses later, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Krishna, have you ever Have you ever given money to help someone or to to spread the gospel? Have Have you ever prayed to God? Matthew 6, 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 10, 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, Because he's a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What does that mean for us? Paul is reminding us of a day that will determine whether we've used our time here and now, or well, or whether we've wasted it. And Paul says, that's a blessing. Right? Just as that state trooper prepared me for my day in court... Right, Not because he wanted to terrify me by the reality of judgment, but because he wanted me to be prepared for that day. Right, and so I did. I went and I googled and I scraped and I took pictures and made sure that my car was ready to please the judge. In the same way, Paul says there in verse 9, speaking of Jesus, we make it our aim to please him. Right, that is incredibly clarifying. And I think it's incredibly encouraging. Listen. So here, here I'm speaking to our church, and I might not say the same thing if I were speaking to a different church, but I think in our church, in our love for the Lord, we try to take our sin seriously, right? We, we value being honest about the ways that we struggle with indwelling sin, things like lust and pride and selfishness and anger. But there is a way that we can take our sin so seriously that it begins to tip over into this idea that we can actually never please the Lord that nothing we do because we're so sin-soaked could ever be pleasing to God. And I think as a result, we might be tempted to give up trying or or simply serve him with very little joy and, and even less hope of ever receiving his approval. But here Paul reminds us of what we saw in Matthew's gospel. God has saved us. He has given us his spirit. He's transformed our hearts so that we can live our lives and invest our time and energy in ways that are pleasing to him. So when you fast, when you give, when you pray, when you endure persecution, when you serve, when you love, right, even if it's not perfect, and let's admit it, it's never going to be perfect in this life, it is pleasing to the Lord. Paul says that's what he's aiming at, that he's living now in light of that day. And brothers and sisters, if you think about it, that is incredibly freeing. If you make it your aim to please the Lord, if he's your judge, then you're released from the burden of having to please everyone else, aren't you? We import so many other judges into our lives, and we magnify them so that they're so much larger in our, in our vision than the Lord Jesus. Right? Maybe it's the opinion of people in social media. Maybe it's, it's even yourself as you condemn and criticize yourself for not being enough. Right? Maybe it's your boss, your professor, your teacher. Right? Paul's saying the only person you need to worry about pleasing is the person in descri- described in verse 10 as your judge. Make it your aim to please him. Now that, that might mean pleasing your boss. That, that might wind up actually pleasing your spouse or, or your kids. But ultimately, the only one you need to be worried about, the only evaluation that matters, is the evaluation of Jesus. And friends, that means we're going to need faith. We're going to need faith to see past all of the judges that are right in our, our sight, Right, we're going to need faith to, to, to see that the judgment of the people around us doesn't even really matter in the end. Faith is what enables us to remember and to live in light of the judgment seat of Christ, to live our lives in light of that day, to live our lives in order to please him. And So as we come to the Lord's Supper together, let's allow it to focus and to strengthen the faith that we need to walk in this earthly tent. God has given us this celebration as a weekly reminder of spiritual realities that should shape our lives. Right here, we see the the body of Christ portrayed in the the bread. We see the blood of Christ portrayed in the cup. Right, We, We see reminders that our judge endured for us the judgment that we deserved. The Lord has given us this table so we can come and exercise faith in Him, so that we can recalibrate the way we live around the truth of His love and the reality of His return and the certainty of His judgment. And so, brothers and sisters, let's please the Lord together now by coming to His table in faith. But first, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the promises we see in your word, that you have prepared a better world for us, that you have given us your spirit as a guarantee to give us certainty that you will do all that you've promised to do. We pray that you would help us to walk by faith. We pray that you would help us not to be consumed by the things that we see in this world, the things that are right in front of us. Would you help us Holy Spirit, to walk by faith so that we might live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.